Thank you for joining us here at Brave Church. We hope our teaching inspires you. For more information about gathering times, events, and other resources, visit brave.church. Here's this week's talk. All right, all right. Good morning. Welcome to Brave Church. As Samuel said, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to be with you. It has been an unbelievable morning. Uh, Hey, Pastor Darren wanted me to let you all know that he will be returning the first week of August, kicking off a new series. And so we are looking forward to that and excited to have him back. Um, If you do not have notes, uh, they should be in your program, but if you do not have them, there are ushers all around you. Raise your hand in the air, and they will make sure you get one. You will need them this morning. And uh, as Samuel said, we're in the middle of a three-part series looking at Paul's letter to Titus. And he was a leader in the early church on the island of Crete, and we're going to jump right in this morning. If I were to ask each of you to name the top highlights of your life, I bet that you could pretty quickly come up with the two to five highlights that are most significant for you pretty quickly, right? Already have a couple running through your head. Uh, For some of you, maybe it's the birth of a child, right? For some of you, maybe it's something that you did in your work. Maybe the day that you worked on a project or completed something that made the world a better place to live in or an easier place to live in. Some of you, maybe it's your wedding day. But regardless of what that day is for you, those highlights, you can probably think of a lot of the details of that day pretty vividly. Well, one of the most important days in my life was the day that I proposed to my wife, Jessica. Uh, I pretty vividly remember how nervous I was. I had never asked anyone that question before. Would have been awkward to practice on someone, you know, like, hey, I'm sorry, not for real. I just need to practice. Uh, So I was pretty nervous about the day. And I I had a lot of moving parts. And I I won't go into all of them, but I had flown Jess's best friend from Minnesota to Los Angeles so she could be there and celebrate with her. I had arranged with members of Jess's family to be there for, uh, for after the proposal as well. I set up dinner reservations at the place where we had our very first date. And after, our, after the proposal, we would go and eat dinner there. And Jess didn't know this, but I had actually kept the receipt from our very first date together. I don't know why. Something in me was like, this is a special one. Hold on to it. So I kept the receipt. And on the table when we got there was going to be a little frame that had the receipt from our first date with a picture on it at the restaurant where he had it. I mean, there was a lot of details, right? I had a lot of details to pull off. But what made me the most nervous was actually what happened just before I proposed to her. I lived about 20 minutes away from Pasadena at the time. And how many of you are early arrivers? What I mean by that is like if my mom is this way, if you have a 1.30 meeting with my mom, She will be there at 12.30 and make sure that there's time for literally everything in the world to go wrong, and she'll still be there on time. How many of you are early arrivers, okay? I'm not that way. Um, I'm the kind of person that if I have a 1.30 meeting with you, if literally everything in the world goes right, I'll be there at 1.30 on time, all right? Don't know why that is. And so, of course, this day, I had left just enough time that if everything aligned, I uh, I would be there right on time. Well, I get on the freeway, and don't judge me, but I was using a flip phone at the time. Do you remember what those were? Like 1980s, I think, was the last time they were around. So I had a flip phone, and I was talking with a friend who was a good friend at the time. And uh, I was talking on the, on the phone, and I look behind me in the rearview mirror, and I see a police car with its lights on. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. I didn't leave enough time for a police car to pull me over. And so I'm talking on the phone, and I, I try that trick where you, like, drop the phone, but then, like, run your hand through your hair to make it... <laughs> Because that's what we all do when we drive. We just 
we drive with our hand running through our hair like that, right? I was trying to make it look like I was casually brushing the side of my hair for five minutes. So I drop the phone. I get off the freeway. I'm thinking, I don't have time for this. Can I just blurt out to this officer, I'm so sorry. I'm on the way to pose my girlfriend. I didn't mean to talk on my phone. Can you just please let me go? It's not that big of a deal. We're all okay. I decided against it. And so when the police officer came to my window, he asked for my license and registration and I gave it to him. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, well, you were going 87 in a 65. I had no idea I was going that fast. I was also really glad I didn't also volunteer the information that I was talking on my phone while driving. It's called wisdom. It's called wisdom. So I, I, he, the officer kind of looked at me funny and, and I was in, you know, in a nice shirt and a tie and had roses and this massive box sticking out of my pocket. And, and uh, I was like, officer, I'm so sorry. I'm on the way to propose to my girlfriend right now. Uh, I had no idea I was going that fast. I'm understandably a little nervous. I, I must have just lost track of how fast I was going. If there's any way you can let me off, though, I really need to get there. And uh, so he went back to his car, checked to make sure I wasn't in the FBI's most wanted list. I wasn't at the time. You'll be happy to know. <laughs> Nor today, in case that was confusing. And uh, he came, comes back to the car and he says, um, I'm going to give you a pass this time. Don't speed again. So I get back on the freeway and I drove the rest of the way, 65 miles per hour, not any faster and like shaking because I was so nervous and now running a little late. You know, the police officer that day, he had the authority to, to punish me for how I had broken the law. He had that authority. By the way, that's the only time a police officer's ever let me off, okay? Um, but that police officer also modeled for me what Paul instructed Titus to do in chapter 2 of the book of Titus. See, the police officer showed me grace, but he also pointed me in the right direction in which to live my life. He said, I'm going to give you a pass, but don't speed again. It was both. I didn't want to speed after that was the reality. I had been given such a gift. It could have ruined my day. And yet that morning, because of the gift that I had been given, it actually changed the motivation of my heart. So I wanted to obey the direction in which he pointed me to live. I wonder if grace, this term that many of us have heard before, I wonder if grace isn't just forgiveness for the wrong things that we've done, but it's also the compass that points us toward who God wants us to become. I wonder if God's grace is better than we ever hoped it could be. And I hope this morning that we get filled with wonder and amazement at God's grace again. We're going to look at all of that in the second chapter of Titus. It's in your notes. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And uh, I'm going to read it for us right now. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do, Titus, reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. 
Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Would you mind praying with me? God, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you that your grace doesn't just part in our past, but it also points us in the direction with which we're to live in our future. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for everyone that is here today. I pray that we would walk away with a deeper understanding of your grace and what that means for our life. God, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would speak through your spirit that is alive in this place. And in Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. Well, the subject of grace and how it connects to the way we live is actually one of the things I am most passionate about in all of life. Uh, This morning, we won't be able to cover every single verse. Um, I wish we could do a deep dive on every verse, but there's just not enough time. And what I do hope happens, though, is that we come away with a deeper understanding of God's grace and the impact that that has on how we live our lives. So the first thing that Paul wants Titus to know and that we want you to know this morning, it's in the section of your notes, number one, good teaching leads to good living. Number one, fill in the blank. Good teaching leads to good living. Titus chapter two, verse one, he starts off by saying, as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Paul is saying, if you want to have a good life, I think most of us here today would want to have a good life. If you want to have a good life, it starts by being taught well. Did you know that studies show that children have to hear more than a million words? They have to hear more than a million words before they can even form one complete sentence. Isn't that amazing? Think about how many words that is, right? And it's amazing because it reveals that God has designed us. He created us to learn. One of our our first uh, attributes that we have as as people is to learn, right? We're, We're hearing all of these words, and before we can even spell learn, before we can even understand what learning means, we're learning. We're already doing it. We take notes around here at Brave because we value learning about God. And whatever we are taught in any sphere of life has a really big impact on our lives. We learn first from our parents and then our family, then from friends and acquaintances, then from role models and teachers and coaches and mentors and bosses, and the list goes on. We're learning from everyone around us. Um, How many of you are the youngest child in your family? How many of you are youngest? I think we're the smartest because we got to learn from everyone else, right? All of the mistakes that went before us, and we just got the blessing of learning. At least we've had the opportunity to learn the most. Maybe you're not the smartest. I don't know. That's to be debated. I'm the last child. Anyways, uh, good teaching will help all of us to learn. We also take the role of giving this talk very seriously. 
our mission statement here at Brave Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. So we are teaching you, we're teaching everyone in this community, in this valley, what it looks like to find and follow Jesus. What we teach you and its accuracy is incredibly important. James chapter 3 even says that not many of you should become teachers because if you're a teacher, you'll be judged more strictly. Why? Because the impact of a teacher on someone's life is huge. What we learn, what we're taught has really big impact in our life. And no one just drifts magically into a good life. You ever notice that? You're you're taught how to live a good life. There's three steps to good living. Uh, You can fill these in. Number one, the first step is good teaching. You promote what is good. That's exactly what Paul said here. Number two is good hearing, accepting what is good. And then number three is good practice, which is living out what is good. And this makes sense to all of us, right? We hear something that is taught to us. Then we hear it and we accept it. If you don't accept it, you won't won't really hear it. And then we put it into practice into how we live our lives. So I want to reference back. The reason Paul makes this point is because Titus chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. Every one of their own men, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. Imagine that on like a tombstone, right? Like, here lies a liar, a cruel animal, and a lazy glutton. We loved him dearly, right? Like, these are intense words to describe a group of people. But Paul is saying, hey, these people are living their lives this way because at some point in time, someone taught them that that was okay. Someone taught them a form of living that worked itself out to being a liar and a cruel animal and a lazy glutton. Can you imagine what it would feel like to live with that kind of description about yourself? If I were to teach you to eat 10 pieces of bacon every day, it might make you happy, which is what bacon does to us, but it might not promote a healthy life, right? Ask your cardiologist what they think about that. How many of you love cake? A couple of you. Cookies, brownies, other desserts, forms of sweets and sugars. Cool. All right. If I told you to eat a sugar or a dessert every day, it probably would not promote a very healthy life. If I told you to eat Chick-fil-A every single day of your life, it's closed once a week, so you can't. It's forced self-control, right? Forced self-control. It's good for you. Paul's laying out for Titus the expectations of the first and most important part of living a good life, which is teach the truth. Teach what is good. Point people to living good. When we speak here at Brave, we want to promote living a good life. That's living life on God's terms. And that can only be accomplished through good teaching. So if good teaching is what leads us into good living, well, then what is the good teaching that we are to teach? Number two in your notes, good teaching is always connected with God's grace. Good teaching is always connected with God's grace. We're going to jump to verse 11 now. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. The word for, it's not just a filler word. You know how we use filler words when we talk? For wasn't just a filler word. The the Greek word is gar, and it, it carries this understanding that everything that Paul has talked about thus far rests on what he is about to say. So that word is incredibly important. It's telling us that, hey, this is the teaching that you need to teach people about, and it is grace. Paul wanted Titus to remember that good news, news that changes people's lives, isn't pointing out all of the things that they aren't doing and telling them to live up to something different. Think about it. 
If all it took for us was to live a good life, was for someone else to point out to us the things that we're doing wrong and the way that we should actually do it, wouldn't we all be fixed by now? Right? If that's all it took, hey, I'm just going to tell you how to live your life and then you're fixed and have a great life. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Paul says that good living is built actually on the foundation of grace. The word grace here is an interesting word. It's, it's the word charis. Charis. And it, and it means a gift. Quite simply, it, it just means a gift. And it's interesting because it's a term that many people in the ancient world uh, would have actually under, understood. When Jesus walked around the streets of Jerusalem talking with Jewish leaders, if he would have said charis, the Jewish leaders would have understood what he meant. If Paul was talking to the Greek philosophers of the day, the Greek philosophers would have understood the idea of a charis. It was a word that made sense to them. They already knew it. But what they didn't understand was the new meaning that Jesus gave to the word. See, Christians weren't the first group of people to talk about grace or charis, but they were the ones who revolutionized what it meant. In places like Crete, where Titus was, people gave a charis to show off how powerful they were, and they only gave a charis to those that were worthy to receive it. If you were morally upright, if you were physically impressive, if you had some intellectual advantage, or if you had done something for me at one point in time that would have deemed you worthy to receive a charis, a gift, right? But charis or grace, as Jesus sees it, is a gift that is given to those who are unworthy to receive it. And so now thugs and criminals and the worst of all people in all of humanity were now being given a gift that had only once been reserved for those with much to offer. The way that Jesus revolutionized what grace means is that he offered everything to those who could offer nothing. He offered everything to those who could offer nothing. So the kind of charis or gift that was available to the world now meant that everyone was welcome. And when you know that you don't deserve something, but you receive it anyways, it humbles you. It produces a humility in your heart. Timothy Keller says that the prerequisite for receiving grace is to know that you need it. The prerequisite for receiving grace is to know that you need it. That's it. It's silly to wake up and think that we have somehow earned God's favor. It's silly to wake up and think, man, God must be really happy to have me today, right? But can we just acknowledge that sometimes in how we live our lives, that's how we live? We live thinking that, yeah, I don't really need it. I don't, I don't really need God's grace. Give it to someone else. This concept of grace is so important that the writer of Hebrews, he wrote, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. So that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. How is it that someone fails to receive the grace of God? What's well, if you fail to acknowledge your need of it? It's if you fail to acknowledge your need of it. I wonder how many of you have heard of grace, but you've missed the meaning of it. Like the people in Crete, you knew the word or you know the word grace, but its meaning has suddenly lost its, its pull on your heart. I wonder how many of you have heard God's grace, but you failed to receive it. And you find yourself hearing good teaching that God loves you unconditionally, but because you haven't taken the second step of truly accepting that you are unworthy of it, so your living, therefore, doesn't quite match up to what you've been taught. I wonder if we know just how much of a gift we've been given. 
I wonder if we've all been deluded at some point into thinking that we aren't actually that far off from God, and so we don't really view God's gift as a gift. You feel like God should give it to you or that you've earned it. And that type of thinking, it diminishes God's grace, but it also hinders us from living the way that God wants us to live. That verse in Hebrews, it also makes me think, who else is around me that is failing to receive the grace of God because I haven't shown it to them? Who else is around you? Who are the coworkers that you're working with every day and they desperately need this gift and, and they're failing to receive the grace of God? Who, who's the neighbors and the friends and the community workers that you see all the time? And what would happen if Brave Church was a place that we took that verse seriously and we looked after everyone in this valley because we wanted everyone to not fail to receive the gift of God's grace? Paul tells Titus to teach the truth of God's grace because there's a freedom that's found when we allow God's grace to rule our lives. In Romans, Paul writes, so just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, we could do a whole talk on just this verse alone, but some of you, Some of you, you're still living under the rule of sin. You're still struggling with the same habits you did five years ago, and you're living a lifestyle that is full of momentary highs but constant emptiness, and it doesn't make any sense to you. Some of you are so wrapped up in fear and shame and anxiety and worry and maybe self-hatred, and you're wondering how you will ever be good enough. And so you decide you won't ever be good enough, and then you give in and you keep doing what you've always done. That's the rule of sin. But see, Jesus offers us a way to live in the rule of grace, where you already have right standing with God. Come and live in the freedom of God's grace. Breathe in the freedom of God's grace. Learn how to live by grace. Are you living under the weight of the rule of sin or are you living in the freedom of God's wonderful grace? Ask yourself this morning that question. So just how wonderful is this grace? We've heard that it's amazing, but have you sat in amazement at it, at the gravity of God's grace? We've heard that it's called wonderful, but when was the last time that you were full of wonder because of this Kari's gift that you have been given. Jesus told us a story, and it might help us recapture our wonder and our amazement at his grace. He tells the story of a Jewish man that was walking on a road. He was going from one place to another, and and as he's walking on this road, um, some people came and beat him up and robbed him blind. They beat this man to within an inch of his life and took everything he had. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Can you imagine what it would be like to lie on the side of the road within an inch of your life with nothing left? Everything's been taken from you. And, and all you want is just one person to come and give you some help. And in the story, there's a couple people that, that pass them by, a couple people that would be expected in the day to help. It was a Jewish leader and a Pharisee and, and some people like that. None of them helped. But then it says a despised Samaritan came along. Now, now to help us understand that, if you're a Giants fan, it would be like seeing a Dodgers fan walking towards you, right? 
I'm a Dodgers fan. I would help you because I believe in Jesus, right? I just want to let you know, I grew up in LA, all right? If you're a Warriors fan, it'd be like seeing a Cavaliers fan walking towards you, right? Not that person. That person's not going to help me, right? If you're a dog person, it'd be like seeing a cat person, right? We get it, right? The most despised person is walking towards us, right? So we read in Luke chapter 10, it says, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan, this despised person, soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs any higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. You know, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might have heard this story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of Jesus' most famous stories, right? But we often come away thinking that we need to care more for those that are hurting around us or not turn a blind eye to that person that's on the side of the freeway holding that sign asking for money. Maybe, maybe I should actually care for and love my neighbors, and maybe you should care for and love your neighbors. Maybe you should pray about those things. But I wonder if you actually saw the grace gift that was given in this text. Not only did the Samaritan save the man from death, he also healed him and then soothed his wounds. Then he paid for all of the expenses that the wounded man had incurred, and then he promised, catch this, to pay for all the future costs he might incur. If that person decides to order a couple rounds of room service, that bill is going to get pretty, pretty expensive, right? All of the future costs that he might incur? Man, that, that could be a lot. But that's exactly the kind of gift that God gives to each of us, unworthy people. See, he saves us from the rule of sin, which leads to death. If you keep sinning, it will lead to death. And then God miraculously, he heals us. He takes our wounds. He takes our trauma, our fears, our shame, our insecurities. And he offers us the deepest healing possible. And then he pays for all of our sins. Every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And God said, I'll pay the price with my own flesh and blood on a cross so that every sin you've ever committed will be forgiven and wiped away. But not only that, should you ever sin again, that will be forgiven as well. The payment is good. I'll pay for it. Yeah. See, that's the truth that Paul is talking about. It's a gift. It's a, a charis that is so wonderful. It captures the deepest longings of our soul and the greatest imaginations of our mind. And it gives us freedom and peace that we are loved by a God who is totally unobligated to love us, but he does anyways. Did you know that the word grace, it appears more than 120 times in the New Testament? Why does the word grace appear so often in the New Testament? Well, see, when Jesus revolutionized the meaning of charis, it struck fear in the religious people that kept thinking you had to earn your way to right standing with God. They kept thinking to themselves, if you give such a gift to such unworthy people, won't they take advantage of it? Isn't that why they were unworthy to begin with? Well, guess what? Have you ever taken advantage of God's grace? I have. I have. There's been moments where I have forgotten the gift that I've been given. There have been moments where I've forgotten just how much I need grace. I think we, we all can acknowledge that there might have been some moments where we received God's grace and then we kind of took it for granted a little bit. But guess what? 
God knew that people might take advantage of his grace, but it didn't stop him from giving it to them anyways, which further reveals just how incredible this gift really is. Who gives a gift knowing that someone's going to take advantage of it and then gives it freely anyways? That's crazy. If you, if you gave me a gift knowing that I would take advantage of it, you would be like, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to put some rules and regulations on it. And God's like, no, I'm just going to give it to him for free because you can't stretch the limits of my grace. My grace is greater. Here's what else God knows. Not only did he save us from death, pay for all of our past sins, heal our wounds, and tell us that all future sins would also be paid for, he also gives us a new nature. Corinthians tells us that we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This new creation, this new nature, doesn't want to get away with anything anymore. Then he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is our helper and our advocate and who leads us into living in all truth, and he gives it all of us for free, Precisely because we are unworthy. We have to be taught this grace repeatedly so we don't forget, so we don't fail to receive God's grace, so we can live in the freedom and the joy and the love of the rule of grace so that our lives can look like Jesus. Because good teaching is always connected with God's grace, and the grace of God has been revealed and it brings salvation for everyone. I love this quote that says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. I'm so glad that's true. I'm so glad that that's true. Number three, grace is the only way to live like Jesus. Grace is the only way to live like Jesus. It's God's grace that has been revealed, Paul writes to Titus, and then he continues in verse 12. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. See, Paul wants Titus to remember that it's God's grace that points us in the direction of how we're to live our lives. Just like the police officer showed me grace and then said, don't speed again, so God's grace redeems our past and then points us in a new direction of how to live. Because of the gift of grace that we have been given, then we live with wisdom because we want to be wise with the gift that God has given us. Because of the grace that we've been given, we mature in righteousness or right living. Because of the grace that we've been given, it compels our hearts to be devoted to God above all other things. And I would rather be devoted to a God who gives a gift like this than anything else in the world. Pastor and author Scott McKnight says that grace isn't just undeserved mercy, It's the transforming power of God taking us from where we are to where God wants us to be. So how many of you would like a little more of transforming power in your life? How many of you are sick of struggling with some of the same things, right? There is power in God's grace to take us to where God wants us to be. It's grace, not trying harder, not promising you won't ever, ever do it again, Not convincing yourself that you're better off than you really are so that maybe you'll get into heaven by comparison. No, grace, grace carries this gift 
is what points us to live more like Jesus. Grace actually makes us totally committed to doing good deeds. I love that verse. Totally committed to doing good deeds. Couldn't our world use use some good deeds right now? Couldn't our cities use some good deeds? Well, if you want good deeds in the world, learn how to receive and trust and live by grace. So then... Here's what a life lived by grace will look like. Here's what grace points us to live like. And Paul addresses four different groups of people in verses 2 through 10. And the four of you are are here today. And so I want to point you to how we should live because of this grace that we've been given. Older men. To all of you older men here, whatever age you want to categorize yourself as older, that works for me. Cool. Older men. says be self-controlled. Be worthy of respect. Live wisely, have sound faith, and be filled with love and with patience. Sometimes that word patience, uh, it's also translated as endurance. It's basically saying, don't give up hope for the remaining years of your life. However many years you have left, grow more patient in them, not less patient in them. Whatever number of days you have left, endure Craig Rochelle has this quote where he says, uh, if you're not dead, you're not done, right? Some of you just need to be reminded that God still has a purpose for your life. And some of you think that your age is what makes you not qualified and unworthy to be used by God. And I would just like to remind you that grace is given not to those who are worthy, but to our unworthy. Maybe if you live by grace and learn how to live by grace again, you'll be amazed at what God will do through you. To older women, he says, honor God. Show reverence to God. Don't slander others. Don't drink too much and train up younger women. Don't drink too much. Let's pause on that real quick. The women in Crete at the time, a lot of, the, a lot of their household had, had left. And so women in, in Crete at the time were in this habit of going around from home to home, just drinking too much with all of their friends, talking bad about everyone. And Paul's just saying grace isn't a license to do whatever it is that you want to do. That's a poor understanding of grace. Grace will point you in a way to live where you're able to live with some self-control. It's not, this, it's not an all-out attack on drinking wine. He's just saying live in a way that's honorable, that honors God with your living. To younger women, Paul says love your husbands, love your family, be self-controlled, be pure, work in the home, or, or love your home, love your family, take care of it. Do good. Do good. And then to younger men, he says, live wisely. Now, I think this is kind of funny, actually. He says live wisely, but it's, it's probably better translated as self-control, live with self-control. And uh, I think this is just further proof that all of you women, all you ladies are just smarter than us men, right? Because he gave like seven things to women. And then when it came to younger men, he was like, just get self-control. If you could just get that one thing... It's going to take all of that grace just for you to develop self-control. All that grace for a woman and like, look at her life. It's amazing, right? All of these things produce, right? Uh, Seriously though, it takes a lot of grace to develop self-control. But young men, my brothers, there may be no greater fight in your life than fighting and contending for greater self-control for fighting for purity and for righteousness, especially in 2017, living God's ways. Self-control was actually the one attribute that was listed for all four groups of people, for older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Self-control was the one attribute that was given to each of them. So there's good news. If you struggle with self-control, you're in good company. 
Welcome to the family. We all struggle with it, right? But why is it that in our areas of self that we lack self-control, we tend to hide that we struggle with self-control in that area, right? But God's already paid for that struggle. He's already said it's, it's paid for. And so because of that, seek some wisdom and counsel from others who have learned and developed self-control along the way. You are just as loved and forgiven if you hide it or if you confess it. So why not tell someone else that you trust and let them help you deal with it? That's the power that grace has for us. I, I used to struggle with self-control in some pretty major areas of my life. And then I, I, didn't, I didn't set out like, man, in five years, I hope I really get a lot of self-control, right? I tried that for the previous five years and it didn't work, right? But what happened is when I started to really understand God's grace, when I actually started to accept that this gift had been given to me and that all my past had been forgiven and all my future had been forgiven and God gave me a new nature. It was when I started to trust in God's grace that now there's way more self-control in my life today than there was five years ago because I've trusted in God's grace. It pointed me in the direction in which to live. And it's not like there still aren't days where I want ice cream when I should want celery or beets or something like that. I want ice cream sometimes, okay? Sometimes, but in the future... I also believe that I'm going to have more self-control in my life in five years than I do today. Why? Because I'm going to trust in the grace of God to point me in the direction. I'm done striving harder in my own effort to make myself pleasing to God. I can live in the freedom of the rule of grace that points me in how I should live our life. Worship team, you can come out. I want to close with this quote by Max Lucado. He says this, Ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored and our sin is punished, but we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so we can be what we dare not dream, which is perfect before God. That's a gift. That is a gift of grace that none of us could earn, that none of us are worthy of receiving, but God gives it because he loves you. And some of you today, you just need to be reminded that there is a gift that is so good. Will you accept it? Will you receive it? Will you start to live under the rule of grace that is easy, where there's freedom? Some of you today just need to be reminded that God loves you not because of anything you've done, but because God just loves you. That is grace. And grace points us in the direction with which we are to live our lives. I hope that Brave Church is a church that lives its, its lives, our lives, reflecting the grace that we've been given, living in a way that honors God. Would you pray with me, if you wouldn't mind, bowing your heads, closing your eyes. There's some of you that are here today who've never received and lived in the freedom of God's grace. You've never stepped out of the womb of sin. Your life is filled with momentary highs but constant emptiness. And you've never learned how to live in the freedom of the rule of grace. If you, if, you, if you want to receive that grace, if you want to accept that today, 
with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand if you're like, I want to receive that grace again today. I want to receive that grace. Yeah, I see hands. I want to receive that grace. I want to receive that grace anew today. This gift that God has given us. You can put your hands down. And then there's some of you here today that you have never taken the step to say, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. I, I, want to be, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, if you've, if you've never followed Jesus before and made that commitment, if you want to raise your hand with every eyes closed, I want to follow Jesus for the first time. Yeah, praise God. Man, it's amazing the gift that God has given us. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your Kari's gift of grace that has been given to us. Lord, remind us constantly through the Holy Spirit that you have given us that all of our past is forgiven. Help us heal our wounds, God. Point us also in the right direction in which we are to live our lives. I pray that Brave Church would be a church that reflects the magnitude of the grace of God that brings freedom and life and joy. I pray that we would be a grace-filled people. I pray that we would live a life that is marked by grace and reflects the glory and the goodness of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.